I do a lot of leadership training in the Christian communities, you might imagine, in groups and one-on-one settings, coaching, and also find myself giving talks for secular corporations doing leadership training. And in every situation that I talk to, to leaders about being a leader, there's always a question that comes up. And if, you're, and if you're part of any of these meetings, groups, or seminars that are similar to that, you know the question. And that is, are leaders born or are they made? That, we all discuss that question. Are leaders born or are they made? And if you are a leader or if you've been part of leadership development or training, chances are you've taken the Myers-Briggs test or the DISC profile or Maxwell's leadership analysis, or you've taken some form of a person, personality profile. And statistics reveal that somewhere between 5-10% of people are natural leaders. And for that reason, there are people that feel, well, great leaders are born. And on the other hand, there are people that feel like they may not have necessarily those proclivities for leadership, but they've developed themselves so well that they would say, we don't believe that leaders are, are born. We believe that they're made. Well, we'll set that aside for just a moment, but I want to take you to the book of Joshua because in the book of Joshua, we get some, we get some at least definition for what leaders do. You know, when I talk to people about leadership, oftentimes I discovered that people want leadership for various reasons. Some people want it because of remuneration. If I'm a leader, I'm going to make more money and I'm going to lead a better life. So that's one, one reason why people want to be leader, but that's not real leadership. Others have the feeling that the reason why I lead is I'm, I feel a sense of importance and I want other people to think I'm important, and I want that affirmation, I want those accolades that come from being in a leadership position. And there's a third reason, and honestly, I found myself here, especially as a young leader, there's some of us that just lead. We don't even intend to lead. It's just you can put us in a group of people. We can be in, we can be in a meeting with 30 people, and within a few minutes, people will be looking at us and say, what do we do? We just lead because you're sort of called to lead. But none of those really give us the reason for being a leader. And I want to take you now to the book of Joshua chapter 1, because in Joshua 1, we learn what it is that leaders do. And if you're a leader, and everybody is a leader here today, you're going to see what it is that leadership calls you to do, whether you're a leader as a parent or you're a leader of leading a corporation. Here's what leaders do. Joshua chapter 1, verse 2. If you heard the talk two weeks ago and it's your time, I gave you the first half of this sentence. Now I want to give you the rest of it. The time has come for you to lead. The time has come for you to lead, God says to Joshua. Now, after this, we get the definition of leadership. The time has come for you to lead these people, the Israelites, here's, look at this word, across the Jordan River and into the land, that's the second word, into, into the land that I've given them. You just got a definition of what leaders do. Leaders take people across barriers into destiny. That's it. Leaders help people get across barriers into destiny. In short, leaders take people from where they are to where they need to be. When God comes to Joshua, the Israel, Israelite people are in a desert. They're in the wilderness. And God has said to them, I want you to take them across the primary barrier, which is the Jordan River, and into the land that I'm going to give them. That's it. If you're a parent, your responsibility in leadership is to take your ki- help your kids get across the barriers and into the place that they're destined to be. If you lead a team, if you're if you lead a if if you're if, if you're a shift manager or if you're a managing partner or CEO or or whatever your whatever your leadership title is, your responsibility is to help the people that are with you get past the barriers and into destiny. Uh, I have a I have a 
portrait or picture that hangs over my computer in my office. Years ago, a young man who's now on our staff, but a young man gave me a gift, and it's a beautifully framed picture of the Lincoln Memorial. And below that is a quotation, and I, I read it every morning, and it intimidates me when I come to work. And here's what it says. A good leader takes people where they want to go. A great leader takes people where they need to be. And we just read the same thing in the book of Joshua. God says to him, the time has come for you to lead people across the barrier into the promised land. That's leadership. But here's the question. Where do we get the wisdom to do that? Well, here's the thing. If you, like I, love leadership, you know that everywhere we turn, there are more materials on leadership. I fly more than I want to fly. Those of you who do that, you know that when you're in airports, you go into the airport bookstores, and there are all these books on leadership. And I don't know if you've discovered what I've discovered, but for all of you who have to go to seminars on leadership and the company that you work for, how many of you have discovered that when the new book or the new study comes out, it's not a new paradigm, it's just new jargon? And what I discover, and I, and, and I love, I love reading Wall Street Journal, and I've got a few other sources I love reading. I love reading Forbes. I love reading Fortune, and my favorite is Harvard Business Review. And, and I get some stuff, and I, there's things in this that are helpful, but at the end of the day, I, I keep asking myself the question, why is it with all this plethora of material on leadership, why do companies, corporations, families, teams, schools, businesses, medical community, why do we keep stepping in the same holes? Because if all this huge source of, you know, source of material, if it really does teach us how to lead, man, we should be golden by this point. There's a reason why what we're learning isn't working. And it's given to us in the book of James. James tells us that there are two kinds of wisdom. There is a wisdom that comes from above, so this is God-given wisdom, and there is a wisdom that comes from below. The Greek word for wisdom, if we had English characters, would be sophos, S-O-P-H-O-S. We get our word sophistication from it. And that's what leaders are looking for. I mean, that's why we read the Wall Street Journal. We're looking for sophistication. We're looking for what it takes in order to lead. And yet the Bible tells us there's a sophistication that comes from below, and then there's a sophistication that comes from God. Now, what James does now is he qualifies that leadership that's from below, and he gives us three levels. He says the wisdom that is from below is earthly, sensual, and devilish. What he just gave us is three levels of bottom-up leadership, and those three levels teach us why a lot of leadership materials that we get really don't help us become successful. Let's go from the bottom up. Demonic. Now, demonic doesn't mean that your boss is demon-possessed, although some of you may have suspicions. <laughs> okay, when, it, when the Bible talks about demonic wisdom, it just simply means people who lead by hurting people. You know anybody like that? They lead by scaring people. They lead by making promises they don't deliver on. They promise, they promise income that never shows up. They promise bonuses that never materialize. They, just, they basically lead by lying. Remember this. God tells us that Satan is a thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So consequently, that, that bottom earthly leadership is just what seems to be smart, but it's just using people. Now, the next level up is sensual. Sensual is not demonic. It just says this. If I'm a sensual leader, I know what you want, and I leverage that to get you to do what I want you to do. For instance, if I know you have self-esteem issues, I may flatter you. And in flattering you, I get you to do what I need you to do. Do I believe what I just said about you? No. I'm just leveraging your weakness in order to get something out of you. That is sensual leadership. And by the way, a whole lot of stuff I read in these books is sensual leadership. And then the third tier 
up from the bottom. There's a certain innocence to this one. It's just earthly. Many times I've given talks on Christian ethics, and I've got friends, there are many friends here in the, in the business community here in Wichita, and they would say, Mark, you just don't understand. I appreciate what you had to say about Christian ethics, but that just doesn't work where I am. This thing about forgiving people and being humble and being merciful and being gracious, Mark, it's just not how the real, and, I, and, I, and they look at me with a certain measure of sympathy as if to say, you lead a Christian organization, you just don't really understand how life works. Well, that's the third level up of bottom of the wisdom from, above, from below. But now James is going to turn around and he's going to tell us about the wisdom that comes from heaven. And I think we start to get a suspicion here. If we're going to actually help people get across barriers into destiny, we're going to have to have God-given sophos, wisdom. Let's read it. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. That means the motivation is pure. It's also peace-loving, gentle at all times, willing to listen. It's full of mercy and good deeds. It shows no favoritism, and it's always sincere. And if you've heard me give talks at New Spring, you know how I love James 3.18 because it is one of my life verses. It says, those who are peacemakers will sow seeds of peace, and they will reap a harvest of rightness. How many of you teachers want, uh, you just want things to be right in your class? How many of you, how many of you who are part of a, a law group, you just want things to be right among the partnership? How many of you are part of a group and you just want things to be right? You want things to be right in your family. Well, here's the deal. Things will never be right as long as our leadership is demonic, sensual, or earthly. It will only be right when we are people who daily hour by hour, sow seeds of peace. I know that sounds counterintuitive with all the stuff that we get in the business world, but I promise you it, God's word is true. If you and I will be pure in our motives, peace-loving people, merciful, willing to listen to others, and we sow seeds of peace, someday where we work, where we have families, we will get a harvest of things being right. That's just introduction. I haven't gotten into the message yet. Okay, here's the question. Are leaders born or are they made? I don't believe either. I think they're built. I think great leaders are built. And here's the thing, and I don't have time to, to talk about this. Maybe we'll talk about it someday. But for all of you who are born leaders, one of the problems with being a born leader is you have a tendency just to go in your talent. If, you, if you're a born leader and you don't let God build you, you're a scandal in the making. This is the reason why we hear about a lot of talented people that wind up in scandals because they just were naturals, but they never developed. On the other hand, if you say, Mark, I'm, I'm not a born leader, but I'm making myself, well, here's the problem. Eventually, you're going to run into an impasse. You got to be really old to know this, that one of the oldest business paradigm books is a book from the 70s called The Peter Principle. And in The Peter Principle, the ultimate premise is that sooner or later, everybody rises to his or her level of incompetence. And that's the deal. If you're a made leader, you'll hit an impasse at some point. So how do you become a breakout leader? How do, you, how do you become the kind of leader that you can lead people across barriers into destiny? Only one way, you got to let God build you. Now, suppose God wanted to build a leader. Suppose he wanted to take a gal and just say, I'm going to build her from the ground up to be a breakout leader. Or suppose God wants to take a guy and say, I'm going to build him from the ground up to be, to be a breakout leader. This is why I love the book of Joshua. Because in the book of Joshua, or in the character of Joshua, we meet a breakout leader. 
Now, you know already, we've met Generation Zombie, we met Generation Breakout. Josh was one of the founding members of Generation Breakout. And here's an important thought. Zombie leaders can't lead breakout people. So God is going to need to build Joshua from the ground up. Now, there are a couple things I love about Joshua that I want to just lay out before you before I show you how God built him. The first one is, if you look at things merely in terms of results, Joshua is perhaps the greatest leader in the, Israel, in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. That's amazing. Because think about this. When God called Joshua to lead, the nation of Israel was in the wilderness, three and a half million strong. When Joshua gets through, they're across the Jordan River, into the Promised Land, settled in Canaan, and beyond that, Joshua has successfully prepared, as we'll see in talk number seven, he has successfully prepared the next generation for success. Wow! Pure results, no other leader in Israel's history in the Old Testament is as successful in results as Joshua. But the second thing that amazes me, New Spring, is that there is a sense of ordinariness in Joshua. I mean, Moses, are you kidding me? Moses is a Mount Rushmore leader. He's a natural. I mean, he was, he was schooled in Pharaoh's house as Pharaoh's adopted son. I mean, he just, you look at Moses, he just reeks of natural leadership. But not Joshua. Joshua's an ordinary guy. And that's why I love this study, because I don't know about you, I have a feeling that I'm very ordinary, but I want to achieve great results in life. When I leave this planet, I don't want to hear Mark was an undertaker. I don't mean nothing about being an undertaker. Usually when I'm talking about leadership, I'm talking about burying an organization. I don't want to be an undertaker. I don't want to be a caretaker. I want to be a risk taker, and I want to achieve great things. Okay, that's the introduction. What would God do if he wanted to build a breakout leader? All right, here we go. Here's number one. First of all, he would teach him fellowship. You see, before you can have leadership qualities, you have to have fellowship qualities. For 40 years, God is going to have Joshua follow Moses. I hope you'll read about this in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Deuteronomy. But for 40 years, God is going to have Joshua follow. When he, start, when he built him, he had him follow Moses for 40 years. Why? Why is it so important to learn to follow before we lead? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever worked for a leader who, who never followed? I mean, either you're talking about somebody who's successful because he had phenomenal parents or somebody who's a jerk. Because nobody really is fit to lead until they've learned to follow. Why, why is following so important? You ready for this? Leaders must have humility. Bosses may not have to have humility. People with titles may not have to have humility, but true leaders do. Every leader in this room knows that. You have to know, I mean, I hate to quote that eminent theologian, Dirty Harry, but a man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> now, let me, let me tell you this. Uh, two, a year or so ago, I, I was in northwest Arkansas, basically in the shadow of Walmart, and we were, there were about 12 of us in a room, and I remember there were a couple of CEOs, and we were all discussing leading in times of transition. One of, the, one of the CEOs was the CEO of Walmart US, and I don't remember a whole lot of what he had to say. He was talking about the internal culture of Walmart, and it was kind of interesting. But the CEO that I remember the most was Donnie Smith, who was CEO of Tyson. And I mean, I was amazed. I knew Tyson was a chicken company. I was amazed to find out their number one product is beef. I think was, if I remember the statistics, it was 43% beef, 36% chicken, 14% pork, and then assorted products after that. But what really stood out to me about Donnie Smith, the CEO of Tyson's, when he walked in the room, he didn't walk in in a hand-stitched suit. He walked in with khaki pants and a work shirt with a white cotton patch. And on that white cotton patch was in red thread 
the name Donnie. I mean, we're talking about the CEO of one of our country's major meat-producing companies, and he walked in looking like a guy that was just, you know, <laughs> on the line. And when he talked about the internal culture of Tyson, I'll never forget what he said to me. He said this. He said, whoever comes to work for us in any sort of executive capacity, he said, we want them to understand everything everybody does here at Tyson. And he smiled when he said, it's kind of interesting to see future vice presidents in a dorm at 4 o'clock in the morning getting up to go out to vaccinate pullets. I never forgot what Donnie told me. Because that's the thing, if you're gonna be successful at the top, you have, to, you have to learn humility. And great business cultures that produce successful results typically lead their leaders to understand the importance of humility. And God did that when he worked with Joshua. Now, here's the thing, 40 years is a long time to follow. Is there anybody here today, I know the answer to this, yes, of course. Is there anybody here today who feels like you followed long enough? <laughs> it's like, Mark, listen, you don't know, my boss is dumb, um, and... <laughs> And, and you're telling me I've got to learn to follow. I think I've got that now. I think I've got leadership skills. And it's time. It's time for me. Okay. I get that. And it's good. And you should feel that. But you're looking at a guy who loves a bargain. There are three bargains in following that will help you ultimately achieve leadership capabilities. Let me give you the first one. Whenever you follow a leader, you gain experience at somebody else's expense. You, you know, here's the thing. And listen, I became a senior leader when I was a very young man. I was barely over 30 when I became a senior leader. Let me just tell you something. When OJT, when you're a senior leader, is real expensive. <laughs> promise, I promise you on that. One of the best bargains you'll ever have is following another leader and learning the good, the bad, and the ugly. And here's the thing. You say, well, Mark, I'm following a bad leader. You're just getting a valuable ex education in what not to do. As great a leader as Moses was, Joshua still learned something about what not to do. Those of you who know the Bible, you know that as great a leader as Moses was, he had an issue, didn't he? What was Moses' issue? Anger. Moses had anger issues. You remember he was up on the mountain from God getting the Ten Commandments, and he came down and he saw the people dancing around a golden calf? Did he polish the stones? No, throw them down, broke them. And then, you know how it was, the people were complaining. I don't blame Moses, but Moses just picked up the rock. God had told him to speak to the rock and water would come out, and Moses struck the rock. Now, as great a man as he was, he had anger issues. Now, when you look at Joshua, and by the way, this is something for another day. When I look at Joshua as a young man, I think he had anger issues too, but we don't see them later on. Oh, this is worth driving here for. Joshua had all the gifts and none of the baggage. He had all the strengths and none of the baggage. Listen, that's what you can do if you're following a leader. You can learn the good and the bad, and you can walk away with all of her strengths and none of her weaknesses. That's what Joshua did. Here's the second bargain, and this one's big. You know, when you follow somebody else as a team member, you learn how to build, and you learn how to take care of a great team. I really think that's what I, I served on four staffs before I became senior leader. And one of the things that I learned, and this is, this is funny, because in, in serving on staffs, I did just about every job that every member of our staff does. So when they come to work for us, I always tell them, the good news is I've done your job. And they know what I mean by that, I can be sympathetic with you because I've done the job that you do. And then I tell them the bad news is I've done your job, which means I don't buy certain excuses. Because if I've done it, I know it can be done. 
But I will say this, in, in serving on four staffs, I learned what it was like to be there. I learned, what it, I learned the qualities necessary to build a great team, and I learned, the quali- I learned what was important in taking care of a great team. When I came here 30 years ago, we had, this is a bad example, I shouldn't tell you this, I guess, but we had the worst health care we had the worst health insurance program in the world. I mean, Jonathan was sick, really sick when he was six years old. I spent thousands of dollars on him. It took us years to recover from that. I determined that when I was senior leader, our people would have the best health care available. And I still try to live by that. That's what you learn about following. You learn what it's like to actually be in, under a leadership. And you learn how to treat people. And you learn how to build a team. Oh, got to run on. Okay, we're still at number one. Here's the third bargain. Here's the third bargain. You know, I want to <laughs> talk to all you leaders in the room that will have a lot of people that work for you, or you could just be a parent and have kids. How many of you have noticed that the people under you think that leadership is not hard at all? It's like, you know what? She gets to do whatever she wants to do. No, it isn't true. I learned one of the greatest lessons about leadership many years ago. In the mid-90s, I was speaking in Fairfax, Virginia, in the shadow of the Pentagon, and the pastor said to me, there's an Air Force, uh, there's, there's a guy in the Air Force, would you be willing to meet him after the service? I said, sure. And he introduced me, he said, this is Ron Henderson. Ron just got pinned with his first star, and his first command is going to be McConnell. So Ron and Linda came to Wichita, and they were part of our church in the, in the mid-90s. But Ron, if you're in the Air Force, Ron was in what was called charm school, which means big things were planned for him. Not long after he was at McConnell, he got pinned with a second star. And I'm having dinner with him because I'm speaking at that church in Fairfax again. And at dinner that night, Ron is telling me about an assignment that he had where he was called to go, I think this was in the late night, somewhere over in Kosovo or somewhere in that area. And And he was given just a few hours to prepare for the trip to pack. And when he got there, he could only call Linda one time a week and only for a few minutes. And I'm, I'm sure he read the shock on my face. And Ron said this, and never forgot it. He said, I have less control over my career now as a major general than I had when I was a, a second lieutenant. He said, there are lots of second lieutenants. There aren't many major generals. That's it. You know what? The third bargain of following is you learn the cost of leadership. Leadership is by far the most expensive commodity. So those are three things, three bargains that you gain by following All right, that's number one, followership. Number two, if God wanted to build a great leader from the ground up, what's the second thing that he would do? Let me ask you a question. For all of you who are leaders, what's the number one tool in your bag? What's the number one thing that you have? What's the number one asset that you have in leading? If I'm I'm talking for a secular corporation, most of the time they will tell me compensation. I want to draw top talent. I want to compensate them appropriately. That way I'll keep top talent. They'll say the number one tool in my bag is compensation. Sometimes I've talked to bad leaders, and they won't necessarily put it in these terms, but I'll draw this from them. They will say, the number one tool in my bag is I keep everybody scared. I just scare everybody. I frighten everybody. Hey, let me give you an axiom for leadership. Bad leaders scare, good leaders manage, great leaders inspire. Greatest tool you have in your bag is not compensation. It's not the ability to scare people. It's not your title. The greatest tool you have in your bag, be you a parent, be you the leader of a major corporation, greatest tool you have in your bag is the ability to encourage people. See, encouragement means infusing people with courage. Did any of you ever work in a situation where you had a boss like I just described who tried to scare everybody? And everybody walked in. I mean, just, you, just get, you just get 
you know, you get butterflies in your stomach just going to work because you know you're going to be chewed out about something. You know that there's going to be screaming and ranting and raving. And, and you know you're working for a boss and all she cares about or all he cares about is keeping everybody scared. Okay, let me ask you this. What's the climate of that business or the climate of that team or of that school? Well, the opposite of courage is tentativeness. And so consequently, if, if you're scared all the time and there's not this climate of encouragement, well, nobody wants to take any risks. Nobody wants to do anything that, you know, stick their neck out. So here's what I want you to look at. And this is, and, 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 and by the way, I, I, this is the hardest concept I have to get across to leaders. I'm probably just not a good communicator, and that's why I can't get this across. But here's what I've discovered about most, about most leaders, most teams, most churches. Most people believe they're not where they need to be. They need to make a series of changes, and if they just get the right changes in place, that, that good things will happen. It's not true. Nowhere close to being true. You cannot tweak your way to success. If you want good things to happen, you have to have a good culture. So if you, want, if you, if you lead a team, you lead a business, a family, you want things to change, you've got to change the culture. Good things flow out of a good culture. You will never tweak your way to success. There aren't, there aren't some sort of, and this, this is another problem with all these books too, because they talk about s a series of individual tweaks and changes. You got to change the culture. Now in this particular case, God is going to build, he's building Joshua from the ground up. He is going to teach Joshua the kind of culture that's successful. Okay, let's read this. I want, to, I, want to read, I want you to read a succession of verses with me because God now is talking to Joshua, okay? Be strong and courageous, God says to him. For you're the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore their ancestors I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. That's twice. Verse 9, be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified. Don't be discouraged. For the Lord your God will go with you everywhere you go. Three times in one breath, if God breathes. Three times God says, be courageous, Joshua. Now Joshua's going to talk to the people. What do you think he's going to tell them? Because God has told him not to be tentative, to be courageous. Joshua says to the people, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged, be strong and courageous. God infused Joshua with courage. Joshua infuses the people with courage. This third thing is my favorite. Look at this. Joshua now has told the people to be courageous. But in Joshua 1.16, they turn around and they answer Joshua. We will do whatever you command us. We'll go wherever you send us so you be courageous. Okay, here we go. Number two, if you want to be a great leader that God builds, let God help you build a climate of radical encouragement. <laughs> Why is that important? Well, in week one, if you were here, I introduced you to Generation Zombie. Why did they choke at the moment of destiny? What caused them to all wander around until they died? Look at what the people told Moses. They said to Moses, our leaders have discouraged us. Where can we go? Our brothers have discouraged us, saying the people are larger and taller than we. Now, I, I know you, some of you are going to chuckle at what I'm going to say next, but I want to talk about family for a moment. I want you to imagine what a family would be like that existed in a climate of radical encouragement. For instance, here's a husband at breakfast. He and his wife having breakfast. And he says to her, you know, I know where you go to work today. I know you're going to have some tough challenges. 
And I know that you got some people down there that are giving you a hard time, but I believe in you, and I am in your corner, and I'm going to be praying for you all day. And I can't wait to get to the end of the day, talk to you about what God did today. And she says to him, you're the greatest guy in the world. You know, you know I, would, I would rather have you for a husband than anybody in the world. And, and I know where you work. you got some hard things going on. you got a boss that doesn't treat you right. But I want you to know, even though there are people down there that don't believe in you, I believe in you, and I'm pulling for you, and I'm praying for you. And I can't wait to see you at the end of the day. And can you imagine parents that go into the room of a, of a kid, and they say to the kid, you know, I know you're struggling in math right now, but you're going to be awesome. You're going to be super, and I'm going to help. We're going to help you with your, we're going to help you get there. And, you, you know, we, we just are so thankful for you, and we're praying for you every day. Or can you imagine a dad that goes into the room of his daughter, and he says to her, babe, I know you got some girls that bully you at school, and, and they give you a hard time, but I just think you're the most beautiful girl in the world. If I could have picked any girl in the world, I would have wanted you, and you're going to be great, and you're going to be beautiful, and you're going to be awesome, and I'm pulling for you. And can you imagine those same kids getting up at breakfast the next day and telling your parents, we are so thankful for all the sacrifices that you make. I know it's hard to imagine that. <laughs> We're so thankful for all the sacrifices that you know. And I know it's hard to imagine, but let me ask you a question. You don't have to be a rocket scientist or a family therapist to answer this question. Tell me what's going to happen in that climate of a family that radically encourages each other. You couldn't pry that family open. That family will charge hell with a squirt gun, as we used to say in Texas. <laughs> All right, the last three. Now remember, we're talking about what God would do to build a leader up from the ground up. We're just going to the Bible and we're seeing the answer. Number one, he'd have him follow. He'd have him have a mentor. Number two, he would have this leader create a climate of radical encouragement. Three, four, and five are similar. And they all support a premise. So let me tell you what that premise is. No matter who you are as a leader, whether you're a managing partner of a law firm, whether you're, you're the you know, if you're the top physician in a hospital, or you're a mom or dad, or you're principal of a school, or you're a teacher of a class, okay, no matter what your leadership paradigm is, you're not up to it. Can I just say that? I mean, <laughs> you got to be really old, and this is a young audience, so a lot of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But all of you old people, do you remember a movie called The Blues Brothers? <laughs> I have thought of my life my entire life, my career, I've thought about it from one clip from the Blues Brothers. You remember the good old boys in the Winnebago? And they got the accelerator glued to the floor? And they're trying to control this, they're trying to control this Winnebago through the streets of Chicago. You know, that's what my life has been like. I've had my accelerator glued to the floor. And I've always told Mary Alice, I said, when I die, I want you to put on my tombstone. Once again, he's in over his head. And part of it is just the way I lead. I mean, I, I always believe this, and I, I gave you this a moment ago. I think there are three kinds of leaders. There are undertakers, they just bury a business. There are caretakers, they just maintain, and then there are risk takers. And I've always had my finger on the risk button because I like great things to happen. But I'll tell you what's happened during that time. Many times I would just get to the end of my rope, and I would, and I would ask myself the question. I used to ask Mary Alice this all the time. I would go home after a particularly hard day, and I would say to her, how do they talk somebody into doing this job? And she said, they don't talk you into it. You got called by God. I hate it when she says stuff like that. <laughs> but I will tell you this. In that process, I've learned to love two verses in the book of 2 Corinthians. Because I think Paul was having just such a moment when he asked this question, who is sufficient or who is competent for these things? I've shrugged my shoulders and asked that same thing. And you will too. Whatever it is that you're called to do, at some point you're just going to say, how does anybody do this? And that's a healthy thing. But Paul, five, five verses later, answers that question. This is beautiful. He says, our competency is from God. 
And God is the one who makes us confident. Are you okay with that? Because, see, generation zombie leaders always have to come off looking like they're the star. So the next three things that we're going to see if God builds a leader is an awareness and an understanding that we can't do it by ourselves. You ready? Here's number three, the first one of those, and it's this. I want you to look at Numbers 13, verse 16. The Bible says Moses called Hoshea by another name. He called him Joshua. Now, in Hebrew, the name Hoshea means savior or superhero. <laughs> How would you like to have that name hung on you by your parents? I mean, you got you to know they believed in their kid. Because when they named him superhero, they were all slaves in Egypt. So I just imagine Joshua in first grade, Hoshea, going to school. Kids, hey, boy, what's your name? Superhero. Yeah? Superhero. Superhero. Well, what's your daddy do? He's slave. Well, what's your mama do? She's slave. Well, what are you going to be when you grow up? I imagine I'm going to be a slave. <laughs> uh-huh, let me get this straight. Your name is Superhero. Well, you know, God came along, got them out of Egypt, and Joshua's a young man now. And Moses, he's going to be Moses' aide to camp. And I just love this moment, and I'm sure Moses looked at Joshua and said, Joshua, uh, we had to do something about that name, boy. Because <laughs> I just don't believe you're going to be able to live up to that superhero thing. We're going to change your name to Joshua. And here's what you should know. Joshua is a shortened version of Jehovah Hoshea, which means God is my superhero. God is my Savior. And then it was shortened to Jehoshua and then Joshua. Now, if somebody here could say, well, ooh, that sounds like a demotion to get your name cut from superhero to God is my hero. Just so you'll know, there's a Greek version of this same name, Jesus. That's not too much of a demotion, is it? But you do see this. I mean, here's the thing. If Moses changed Joshua's name for two reasons. Number one, if that tag stayed on him, he would feel pressure to live up to it. And how many of us have done crazy things trying to live up to a title that somebody put on us? Titles can be oppressive. The second reason why Moses changed Joshua's name was Joshua needed to understand that when success happened, it wasn't because he was the Savior. It was because God rescued him. So here is number three. The third thing that God would teach us to do if he was going to build us from the ground up is to let go of being a superhero. Let go of Here's the deal. You won't get there by yourself. Don't make your people think that you will. Don't make your kids think that you're, you're the superhero. Let them know that God is your superhero. And don't be ashamed of that. Here's number four. Let's read it. Joshua 1 verse 7. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Don't deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you will be, I love this word, successful in everything you do. Wow. How would you like to be successful in everything you do? Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you'll be sure to obey. It doesn't do enough. It's not enough to read the Bible. Obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do? How many of us would like to prosper and succeed in everything we do? I would. Number four, a God-built leader will keep the Bible close. And I don't mean just sitting on your desk. I mean close. And I don't mean the kind of reading where it's like, okay, I've read my Bible for the day. I'm talking about reading the Bible like you read Kiplinger. I'm talking about reading the Bible like you read Harvard Business Review. When I open this, I'm reading this to see what is salient to my situation as a leader. Go to the Bible because this is God's wisdom revealed and read the Bible as in what are the principles that God is giving me to utilize in leadership. 
Almost every day, my phone is going to ring, and I'm going to look, and it's not our area code. I know what it is in almost every situation. Some leader somewhere in the country is calling me to say, Mark, here is my situation. And they will give me a singular situation that includes the dynamics of that situation, and they will say to me, what do I do? Here's what you should understand. When I answer that question, although I've heard his dynamics, I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about what principle from God's Word comes to bear on that specific issue. Because through the years, I've studied this book. And by the way, for every leader in the room, which is all of us, let me give you, let me give you a little piece of information. The book of Proverbs has 31 chapters. The longest month of our year has 31 days. Read the corresponding of chap chapter of Proverbs with the day of the month. You will learn so much about how to be a leader that there will be things that come out of you that are brilliant, and people will wonder, where does she get it? It's because you've been in God's book, and you've got some wisdom that comes from above, and you've got transformational information. I, I do this all the time with my staff. And my, the staff knows my favorite proverb because around here at New Spring, is you can, we're always taking risks. I mean, we're always like, what's next? If we, if we celebrate a new record, it just becomes a new floor. It becomes a new threshold. And so as we take risks, there's always challenges that come. And staff will come in and they'll talk to me about the challenges they're facing. And I'm always going to quote Proverbs 14.4, where there are no oxen, the stall is clean. Do y'all need the Hebrew translation on that? My grandfather was a rancher. I know what that means. You don't have any cow, you don't have any oxen in your barn, it's, it's going to be clean. But the, the verse goes on to say, but there's much increase with the strength of the ox. In other words, if you take risks, there are going to be challenges. If you don't take any risks, there won't be any challenges. But there's a lot of forward progress that's in taking risks. That's a Bible proverb. Keep the Bible close by. Not just as a daily, you know, well, I read my Bible today. I mean, mine it. Go into it, leaders, and look and see what God has to say to you. I promise you, you'll walk away. Read the words of Jesus. I mean, someday I'm going to write a book on Jesus, in, uh, Jesus business principles. I've been saying that for years. I can't wait to do that if I get time. Number four, keep the Bible close. Here's number five. As a guy who's led for a lot of years, could I tell you something? Discovering the right objectives isn't difficult. Finding the plan to achieve those right, uh, right objectives was, was challenging. Here's Joshua. What you must understand about Israel taking Canaan is it's not going to be like they have a graduated series of challenges. They're going to start with, you know, they're going to start with preseason games and then they're going to have some week games and then they, as, as time goes along, they're going to start playing the playoffs. You've got to understand, I mean, here's Joshua. His first game is a Super Bowl. That's just how it is because Jer Jericho is the city that he's got to take before he can get the rest of Canaan. And it's the biggest challenge they're going to have. And the people of Jericho weren't worried about anybody attacking them because Jericho had a system of walls. There was an outer wall that had a stone base that went up a good distance, and then there was a wall on top of that, and then behind that there was an earthen embankment that, it, that ascended of some nine acres, and then there was a second wall, and in total, the total height of the walls was ten stories. Now, if you had ten-story walls around your city, I mean, here's the thing. People of Jericho weren't worried about anybody attacking them because if they managed to get over the first wall, they'd be on that earthen embankment, and the archers could just chink, 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 chink. So nobody ever attacked Jericho. So here's Joshua. He's a new leader. And he's, um, he's setting up one night, and he's trying to figure out, how are we going to take Jericho? Should I try to get into one of the gates? Should I 
You know, should I send the infantry in? Should I send the archers in? How do I do this? At that moment, if you had talked to Jericho and said, hi, hi to Joshua, hi, Joshua, my name is Mark. What's your, what's your name? Who are you? And he would hand you his business card and say, my name is Joshua, and I'm captain of the Lord's army. But he's perplexed. How do I take Jericho? That night while he's up trying to figure it out, suddenly there is a great image, a great presence in front of him. It looks like a man with a sword. This is, this is just between you and me. In theological terms, you don't need to remember this word. It's what we call a Christophany. It's Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. There's several of these. It's a visual manifestation of pre-incarnate Christ. It's just Jesus. Just take that. So here's Jesus in his glory, like John saw him in Revelation chapter 1. Joshua's freaked out because he knows this. Hey, if this guy is for us, we're okay. If he's against us, we're not just dead. We're more dead than we thought we were. And Joshua asked him a question, and every leader in this room needs to hear this. Joshua said, are you for us or are you against us? And the Lord's answer will surprise us because the answer came back, neither. What the Lord said to him basically was this, Joshua, I didn't come to pick sides. I came to take charge. And by the way, I came as captain of the Lord's army. Hand me your business cards. And I've come to give you the plan. I'd like to have been there. I hope God keeps this on videotape. So Joshua's wondering, I'm going to take the army in, put the archers in. Okay, Lord, what, what's, the, what's the plan? Oh, we're going to do a parade. Excuse me? We're going to do a parade. Would you take all three million of your people, and I want you to have a parade around the city of Jericho. Well, what do you do after that? Well, won't you come back the next day and have another parade? And well, after that, on the third day, I want you to come back and do another parade, and another parade, and another parade. And on the seventh day, I want you to do seven parades, and I want you to yell and blow horns. That's it. Could I have three more minutes? God's plans never make sense. They just work. Here's the deal. Most of us as leaders, we depend on conventional wisdom, and conventional wisdom is just yesterday's metrics. What we don't know is the future. Here's the thing. You and I both know the story. The walls fell down. They took Jericho. They went through it like a hot knife through butter and lost almost nobody. But here's something that you need to see. In Isaiah 55, 8, the Bible says, God speaking, my thoughts, the way I put things together, is not the way you put things together. And my ways or my plans are not your plans, says the Lord. As the earth is higher than the, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my plans than your plans. Guys, I want to tell you something. I'm not trying to be cute here today, but I'm telling you the truth. You would not be sitting where you are today if it had not been for a series of times that God, probably 10 or 12 times, God whispered into my spirit, don't do this, do this. I promise you, we, we, wouldn't, we would not be here today. There's so many reasons why we wouldn't be here. And things that God told me to do, and I'm not talking about out loud, I'm not trying to freak you out, I'm not hyper-spiritual, it's just stuff God made clear to me. Mark, if you do this. Yeah, I, I did a series called Divine Whispers. If you're interested in some of those, you'll find them back then. You would not be here today if I had gone about things with my plan. And this is the reason why you will never be able to think your way to God's plans. This is the reason why God's plan. Here's the thing. The plan of salvation makes no sense. I mean, because if you ask the average person, how do I get to heaven? Well, you'd be a nice person. 
That's the way you go to heaven. Well, what's God's plan of salvation? God's plan is that none of us can be good enough. So what does he do? God comes to our earth and becomes human. He takes on skin, runs a table, lives a life for 33 years with no sin, turns around and dies on a cross so that we get a righteousness transplant. That's his plan. You know what the, we, we, you know, we know a story about heart transplants, you know, and, and, and what a noble thing to be a donor, and, and we should all at least contemplate that. But in a, in a donor situation, someone dies so that someone else can live. Well, Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins so that his righteousness could be transplanted to us. Now, who could think their way to that? It's, it's top down. Well, let me close there. Have you, have you invited Jesus into your life? Have you received his plan? If you haven't, I want to ask you to pray with me because somebody could say, well, Mark, you've been talking about leadership. Now you're talking about me having a relationship with God. Yeah, that's true. But if you're here today and you just say, I never have been able to think my way to God's plan, but I want to pray. I want to invite Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. Then you can pray with me. I'm going to pray it slowly. You can say your own words if you want to, or you can join me and use my words. Dear God, I am a sinner. Thank you for loving me anyway. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe his blood paid for my sins and that you've offered to transplant his righteousness into me. Thank you for forgiving me and making me God's child. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer, please go by guest services. Went out in the lobby, little one back by the coffee shop. There's a packet with a DVD and a book I wrote. Thank you for being here. Someday we'll do six hours on this. God bless. We'll see you next weekend.